0: Welcome to Surf Splendor. I'm your host, David Scales. Excited to bring you today's episode with Mark Andrini, surfboard shaper Mark Andrini. Um, this is kind of a one of the treats of hosting and producing this show, is interacting with guys like Mark. And what I mean is, um, a lot of times I do interviews on here with people who whose stories you already know, their stories I already know, they're relevant to the show because they're relevant to surf culture, but you know, I don't necessarily learn a lot of new things when I interview certain people. Um, I'm grateful to meet them and interact with them and, and have them be a part of this show, but oftentimes it's not a huge learning experience for me. This was um, an entirely different experience, actually. Mark Andrini is a guy whose name I was aware of, who everybody talks about, everybody venerates, a lot of Listeners have actually emailed asking for me to interview Mark, but there's really just not a lot of information about Mark online, and so it's one of those one of those figures in surfing that there's kind of a folklore about. And um, I had crossed paths with him a few times, and he was always really nice. But I never really got a chance to talk to him, and I certainly never really asked him any personal questions until uh, this hour that you're going to hear right now. So we get into um, some of Mark's biggest influences, who are George Greeno, Margot Oberg, Phil Edwards, Rennie Yater. Really, again, iconic people who would all be amazing to actually get on this show. So Mark Mark explains some of his relationship with them. We get into a bit of surfboard design theory. Mark mainly focuses his surfboards on a design that is known as the displacement hull, and he gets in. He'll explain that in this show, and then also we start talking about George Reno's edge design. So it doesn't really get too far off into the weeds or too nerdy from a design standpoint. uh, But I think just enough to provide a little bit of insight for terms that maybe you've heard about before and boards that you've even seen. Maybe didn't fully understand what what the application was for that design. Mark does a really good job of kind of describing and teasing apart that sort of thing. So I hope that you enjoy this conversation. It was recorded at the boardroom show in Santa Cruz a few weeks back. So that's what all the ambient noise is in the background. It's actually Mark and my audio is really clear, but there's just a few a few sounds in the background of people moving around things, but not too big of a distraction at all. So enjoy this conversation, and I will be back at the end of the show to sign us off. Again, David Scales for Surf Splendor. Here's my conversation with Mark Andrew For I look around me,
1: and it seems you found me. days keep turning into
0: night,
1: as the days keep turning into night, and even breathing feels alright, This yes, even breathing feels alright,
0: now even breathing feels alright. See them them. Uh, firstly, I mentioned it to yesterday a little bit, or whenever I saw you last, that um, I've gotten a lot of listener emails asking to interview you. So you've done a good job, or maybe it's your um, longevity in the industry, but people see, or maybe, you know what it might be, is that you have a pretty limited online Presence, like you don't really promote yourself or actively update a blog or anything like that, so maybe people just want more of you. You know?
1: <laughs> Do you have any idea what's going on? Why? You know, well, that's a funny statement because in our era, and I talk, I'll talk about my era was well, let's say the '70s because the sick. I started surfing in 1962, but I was only 12 years old. And so I was just a little kid and I started restoring surfboards that same year and by the time I was sixteen I was making complete boards in the transition era and, and by nineteen I was in full time business making oh, boards. Wow. So for me when when I hit the seventies that's I'd left home and I had my own surfboard business And I was raised in Santa Barbara, and that's where I had my business. But in our era, so let's say the 70s is my era, and you would never, ever do anything to draw attention to yourself. (laughs) That was absolutely taboo. You know, if if you were worth taking a picture of, somebody would take a picture of you. You would never, I mean, any guy that would take a picture of himself or, or publish one, or write about himself or any of that it was be you know they'd throw rocks at you totally when you showed up at the beach and it was just it was part of the the culture and that's how we were raised to, is to be humble and to be responsible and just do your work and um you know let your work speak for itself so so I've never been comfortable at all doing that type of thing yeah you know so
0: it's it's quite the opposite now <laughs> it's, it's really crazy
1: yeah yeah, today people well, it's not today, but really all through time, you know, advertising, they w- people will create an aura or an image about something that that's invented, you know. Yeah. And uh and and there's philosophy that that what you believe is is reality, mm-hmm. and that's a philosophy that my generation doesn't I would say doesn't agree with.
0: And I agree. Even my generation was raised with more of your mentality that you were raised with. I'm curious, though, you're on Instagram and you've seen this new generation come in. Mm -hmm. Who do you follow? I mean, do you enjoy? Do you actually pay attention on Instagram? Are you following people?
1: you You know, what's fun for me is that because I have a wonderful group of young people that I make boards for and have been involved with it helped me be a part of that world. Yeah. And so because of them I've learned how to do all of that and most of these years they've had to do it all for me. And then I don't even know how to, you know, turn on my computer to read it, but now <laughs> that I've learned, you know, I I follow all my own guys and, you know, and I make my own posts and I, I like to post pictures that people sent me. Oh, okay. Of things that they're doing, or the the board that I made them, picture them surfing it. Most of my posts will be about things like that, where it's the other guy. And uh, and that really makes it fun, because that's really what, for me, my business is all about, making people happy Mm. by making a board that helps them achieve what they're looking to get out of surfing. Right, because that's really the point of making a board for somebody. Absolutely, you know, to enhance their experience, and so they're all stoked. Yeah, and they send me letters and pictures all the time, and that's what I, I really—that's my favorite thing to post.
0: Yeah, and I saw I'm, a recent one that I saw was in Japan. I think
1: yes, Japanese surfer riding yes. one of your
0: boards. So, yeah,
1: and and that Misaki is my distributor. Oh, okay. I met him nine years ago, and he'd never imported a single surfboard to Japan. And I can't remember why he wanted to meet me, but he I, he didn't understand because his, his English isn't real good. Because I was raised in Santa Barbara, and that's where my business was, people think of me as a Santa Barbara guy. Well, I've lived in Half Moon Bay for about, I think, since 1980. Oh, wow. So a really long time. And he didn't understand that I didn't actually live in Santa Barbara, but I, He wanted to meet me when he was there in town. (laughs) So I said, you know what? No problem. Just tell me when you're going to be there. And so I I planned my trip down there for when he was going to be there. And he and his wife are the most wonderful people. And, I mean, I never had sent any boards to Japan. And he ordered five boards. And he's been such a, a trustworthy, you know... Man of integrity, him and his wife, that for me it's been a pleasure just to work with them. Wow. And so over these years, they've built up a clientele and I've introduced them to all my other board building friends who they also buy boards from. Oh my God. And are distributing them around Japan. And they love them, you know. Amazing. Yeah, so I, I, and of course, I limit him. I can only make so many boards. Sure. But I make him uh, groups of boards every year ever since. So anyway, I, uh, that was cool when he sent me that picture. I yeah. couldn't wait to post it.
0: Super cool. So let's go back uh, on the timeline to kind of your origin story and growing up in Santa Barbara. You said you were reshaping boards, but you ended up building boards as well. Right. Who are you getting materials from at that time in Santa Barbara? Where do blanks come from? Where does well?
1: When I, I originally I would restore longboards, and if a longboard. Usually, of course, there were no leashes and lots of rocks. And high tide was the real enemy of any surfboard in those days. And there's high tide twice a day, so there's plenty of beat-up boards for sale. And I would buy broken-and-half boards. It would be broken at the seawall at Rincon with snap boards in half even in those days. Five bucks. I'd put them back together, put a competition band across and sell them for 20 bucks. Wow. And uh, I actually was making a living all through my high school years. Really? Doing that, yeah. And I'd get boards with no nose, no tail, the fins off, and I'd put nose blocks, tail blocks, make a fan out of a sheet of plywood, pigment it. And so when the shortboard revolution started to happen, I just would strip the glass off of longboards and reshape them. Yeah. So, so that's where I got the materials. And the White Owl shop in Santa Barbara, I was on the surf team there, and they b- built all my boards, and so I could get materials from them. That's got where it. I would have got it. Mostly scraps. Okay. I did all everything with scrap material. Got it. But that that's where I got it.
0: Okay. I I remember reading somewhere that your mom taught you to surf. Is that true? That's true. What I mean, that is such an, I mean, especially <laughs> there's there's more female surfers now in the lineup than we've ever seen before and it's still one out of every 20 surfers probably in the lineup it's got to be
1: i'd say less huh yeah Yeah, depending on where you are i suppose but
0: i got to imagine she was the only person in the lineup at that time that's well my
1: mom was a swimmer and she was raised in san francisco and she moved us to santa barbara Mm -hmm. when my parents split up in the 50s and she loved hawaii she'd been to hawaii before she got married and it surfed Waikiki and uh, Napoleon is one of the beach boys they have pictures of of Napoleon and her Waikiki and she just loved surfing and she was a swimmer and a body surfer so then she you know come home and had a family so she wasn't actually actively surfing in those years when we were little kids but she raised us at the beach in Santa Barbara at East Beach where she taught us to body surf then we graduated to you know uh, little styrofoam belly boards sure and um and but she always told us about how incredible it was to stand on a surfboard Mm. and in the 50s for we were little kids there was nobody that you could watch surf they surfed at rencon but you know we did we weren't down there right But in downtown Santa Barbara, we never actually saw anybody ride a surfboard. We didn't know what it looked like. Yeah, I
0: mean, Surfer Magazine wasn't around at the time. No, that
1: that was 61, I think. Yeah, yeah, I think so. So uh, when we got older, like late grade school, and surfing hit the boom, the Gidget boom happened, Uh, there were boards available, and my dad bought us two pop-outs, me and my brother. Okay. So that's how we got started. We'd never seen anyone ride one, but you know, we took him down to East Beach and tried to surf him.
0: Fascinating, and it
1: was it was so awesome.
0: Yeah, fascinating. I mean, that yeah. whole era, yeah. and especially that region, produced. I mean, pretty iconic surfers and board builders. So it really is fascinating. I know that you grew up surfing with Margot Oberg, and you were really good friends, right? We and still are. She oh really? Uh, yeah. And yep. she obviously went on to win several world titles. Can you tell me about that relationship and how it developed and
1: Well actually this is the a good subject for a for a short story but Perfect. A short version of a great story is is that Margot Godfrey, of course, is her maiden name. Right. But I think she I always think of her as being 12 years old because we're about three years apart. I was 15. Okay. And the word was all over town that Margo's moving from La Jolla to Montecito, where we all lived. And there was a big buzz about it. So Margo comes to town, and she's in junior high. And I, I I must have been in high school, so we weren't in the same school. But we surfed every day after school at Hammonds. Got it. So the first day she's in town, here she is out at Hammonds and uh, riding a, an eight ten Hanson that Mike Doyle shaped her with white panels—a beautiful little board. And she lost her board, and I'm thinking this is my chance. So I go in there, and I saved her board off the rocks, and I and I swim it out to her. And I don't know how the hell I I it mustered up the courage, you know, asked her if she's new in town and all this. Per, did you can you you only like imagine. You, didn't know her or something? you know, I don't know what I did, but you can imagine. You know, as a real operator at fifteen, but I asked her if if she wanted me to drive her down to Stanley's, which is the famous beach break down towards Ventura, on Saturday, and this is on my first time I ever talked to her, yeah. right? So I had to, you know, make sure that I had I had the opportunity. I had to strike while the iron was hot. And sure enough, she says, "Well, sure, okay." So anyway that Saturday, of course I didn't tell her I didn't have a driver's license. (laughs) Of course I had a car because you know, I was planning ahead. I had my thirty dollar car, my fifty Chevy. Thirty dollar car? Thirty bucks. That's always to pay for cars. Nobody wanted all those old fifties cars then. Oh my gosh. So I my my friend who had a license would drive out of the driveway with me. I'd tell my mom we're going surfing together. We'd pull around the corner, he'd get out of the car, get in his car and leave. I'd pay it, give him the 50-cent payoff, and I'd be free for the day. Amazing. So I went and got her. We went surfing, and we became best friends and surfed together probably every week, three or four times for the next couple of years okay. before I moved away. And uh, we didn't see each other again until about, I'd say, two only two or three years ago. We've been in some oh contact, my gosh. but we're back in contact and uh, you know that was a really special time for me because she was truly I believe the greatest female surfer that ever has lived really she was as good as any guy and better than almost all of us and as good as the good ones, but she had this beautiful feminine grace. Mm that you, you don't see that equaled i've never seen it equaled myself yeah. so i have a tremendous respect for her ability is she you know? still surfing yes yeah she still surfs
0: i know she spent a lot of time in was it kawaii Kauai, yeah um yeah. where does she live now
1: she's well i don't know if i should be saying that's this, fine but she's in central california let's oh, okay. leave it at that cool Very but she's cool. here taking care of her you know Her parents are aging and she's here helping take care of them.
0: Glad to hear that she still serves.
1: Oh yeah, yeah. Yeah.
0: Well so when you were you were building boards by the age of nineteen um as a business, who were your influences at that time and did you apprentice under anybody or was it all just learned by fixing and ding repairs and things like that? You know,
1: another funny thing about that is that no, I I've never apprenticed I've 100% hundred percent self taught wow, because in those days there, there was no such thing as somebody letting you come into their shop and oh, showing right. you what to do or or you bring some hacked up you know blank and they 're going to glass it for you and make it look nice you, you know if you were going to do something, you had to make the whole thing yourself because okay. shops were you 'd make the whole board in one factory and uh, and there were older people that did that for a living. And uh, you'd like Yater, and, uh, and the White L shop. I mean, those guys had factories, and they're going to have some little kid in there showing them what to do. So when I uh, started making boards, I already knew how to do it because I'd been restoring them since I was 12 years old. Right. It was no problem. Sure. But, but the fun part for me is, is that my, uh, I'd say my primary influence in my surfing life would be George Greeno. Okay. Because of the way he surfed, I, got, I surfed with him, I saw him in his prime, I got to surf the ranch with him when he was riding his red flexible spoon, velo, and I saw what he did and I was just so astounded, that's what put me on my course of a displacement hull type of a surfboard, and um, that's been my primary focus in my personal surfing. And although when I, you know, when you make boards for a living, you make lots of different types of things. But my personal quest is riding single fin displacement hulls, and that's what I really love.
0: Can you explain displacement hull for the listeners?
1: Well, to be fair, and how that's different. Every board displaces water, but but the idea is if you just compare a sailboat to us to a hydroplane speedboat. Okay. So a flat bottom or a concave bottom rises up on top of the water and skims along the top of the water, whereas a sailboat has a deep hull that goes down, say, 10 feet down into the water, and it has a curve to it, and it pushes through the water, and as the water parts, it's forced to to deflect around the sides of the foil of the hull or the keel, And it creates a forward thrusting motion because air over an airplane wing does the same thing. It creates lift and water wrapping around a keel creates forward momentum. And so that's the difference. I mean, those are extreme examples, Yeah. but a surfboard that's designed around a bottom that drops down into the water gives you a sensation of being connected to the wave and it, it's It's a feeling that's just so wonderful uh, compared to a board that skims on top of the water and you can steer them all over the wave, and that's satisfying too. It's just a different approach right and so it's really I think just personal uh, what, what your personal goals are and what you want to get out of your surfing. I just really love that connectedness and the flow of the displacement style of a board. And that suits a certain certain type of surfer.
0: And you got turned on to that by watching Greeno. Correct. So tell me about seeing Greeno. When did that happen? How did (laughs) that happen? Had you heard about him before seeing him?
1: We all knew about George Greeno because in 1964, you've heard of The Endless Summer. I've heard of that. (laughs) George Greeno was in the beginning of that film. Not a lot of people will remember that. You'll remember it if you go back and watch it. But the film was shot in 1962. All that footage is 62. It was released in 64. So Bruce Brown says, here's George Greeno, a very uh, long ride on a very short bellyboard. And it shows George Greeno at the sandbar riding a waist-high screamer on his balsa wood kneeboard. And, of course, he's kneeboarding, not bellyboarding. boarding." And so we all knew about George Trino. Plus, we all lived in the same neighborhood. He only lived two miles from me. And so I was able to surf with him when I was taken by friends to the Hollister Ranch. And I was there on, a, on an epic day. And this is the subject of, you know, also stories that are worth writing a whole story about.
0: Well, let's hear that. Let's break it down. Tell well, me about that day.
1: <laughs> that day, I went with Margot, whose friends from La Jolla were coming up there, rich guys with a fancy Boston whaler. Okay. And I mean we were dirt poor. And so they wanted to come up and surf the ranch. He's now thirteen and they think that she has connections, right? Well her connection's me. And so she asked me, Hey, you know my friends want to come up and surf the ranch, you know? Can can you fix that so we can I said, Sure, I've been there. I know all about the ranch. And of so course, lis-
0: for listeners who don't know, the ranch is a private property. It's that all you can't private access. property.
1: It's not accessible except by boat. So they're coming up with a Boston Whaler with twin forty horsepower Evinrude outboards. You know, new station wagon towing it. I mean, these guys have some coinage. And of course, I used the same tactics as when I invited her to go surfing with me by exaggerating my capabilities. Oh, I'll take you there. No problem. So, sure, no problem. Had you ever
0: been there before? Of course not. Okay.
1: But I'd memorized. I'm only 15, for God's sake. Right. So I knew everything about the ranch. I'd read everything ever written about it. I knew what tide, what spot, what sway, everything. Okay. But I'd never actually seen it. So these guys come up, and I'm 15. I probably weigh 130 pounds. You know, I'm a little skinny, tall, skinny kid. And... I'm in my, my peacoat, my pea you know, and my Levi's and a white T-shirt. And uh, they stuck me up in the bow as the navigator, and we launched off the Gaviota Pier. And I don't know how in God's name I did it, but I figured out how to get us to, le- to rights and lefts. And we get there, and it's, there's not a soul in the ranch, just the four of us. And we surf there until it started to close out. as a big South Swell building. The tide dropped, and it closed out. And I knew, well, you got to go to Government Point. That's low tide, big south swell. And if you've been there, you'd understand, how the hell did I figure out how to get us there? Because there's these channels that cut through the kelp to get in there. And somehow or another, I got us there, and it's like one of the best days of the year. Really? Well, you know it was one of the best days of of the year because Danny Hazard and George Greeno show up. And they're the only other people in the ranch besides us. So, yeah, you can be sure it was one of the good days. That had nothing to do with me. Sure. I just got us there. I didn't know there was a swell coming. So we're out in the cove surfing our longboards, you know, surf team era, no whip turns, running to the nose, quick five, cheater fives, drop knee cutbacks. You know, we're wearing short john wetsuits. And here's this guy who paddles out way around the top of the point where it's just solid rocks at 6 to 8 foot, unrideable by longboard standards. We never even considered it rideable up there. And I watched him ride his red spoon. I had no idea what it was. You couldn't understand what it was because it was hollow. It's just paper-thin fiberglass with a little rim of foam around the front. And he would bank into these... incredible bottom turns accelerate out of the turn which no one had ever seen ever and pull up into a barrel which no I'd never seen that and vanish from sight and then come exploding out of the barrel and then do a figure 8 cutback up into the soup and pull back into a second barrel on the same wave and then come out and do another figure 8 cutback I was just, just, I was astounded.
0: Ridiculous.
1: That would have been 1966. Okay. Before the shortboard revolution. So I saw that firsthand.
0: Yeah. And And how uh, did that affect you? And how did that change the course of what you were writing?
1: Well, for me, it was only a year later that I shaped my first shortboard. Okay. And the template came... Through a friend of mine who got it from George Greeno, a seven-three swal- I made it into a swallow tail. It's probably an arc tail, but I, for some reason, thought a swallow tail would be good on it, which it was. And I made a rolled bottom and a V in the tail, and it was really a great board. That mm. my, was my brother's longboard that had wrecked at Steamer Lane. Got it. And uh, I tore the glass off and reshaped it, and that was my first really good surfboard. And I was sixteen then, so it's probably nineteen sixty-seven when I made that board, and and that was it for me. From then on, I only made my own boards. Yeah. And every time I went to the beach, someone would ask me where I got the board that I had under my arm, and I well, I made it, and then they would order one. Got it. So that happened every single week. Wow. And you know, what's funny? it's funny is. And I and I consider myself really fortunate because that still happens today. Every single week, really? I go surfing, and somebody I'll see in the water will ask me about my board, and they'll say I want to order one. Amazing. I still get orders just by going to the beach and surfing.
0: Well, then you got fifty-two orders a year, <laughs> every year. There you go. <laughs>
1: Well, actually, it's a lot more than that. No, I know, but, but at least 52. But guaranteed. I'm getting at least that many. You know. <laughs>
0: um, it's funny, I actually, I was talking to Scott Bass last week, asking him what he was riding, and he was talking about an 11-foot glider that he got from you that he's been loving.
1: Yeah. So, yeah.
0: And I know he's been riding it for a while because I've seen him riding it in previous years.
1: He's um, a good surfer. Yeah. Looks like he surfs it really well. I've seen pictures. Guys send me pictures of him riding it. Yeah. And, of course, I post those. Sure. You know, I love doing that. Well, so
0: um, everything that you've said about Greeno so far, you've seen him from afar and you got that template through a friend. Did you ever spend any time with him?
1: You know, it's funny you ask that. I, I was really shy. It doesn't sound like I was shy after my stories about, you know, Margo. taking Margo yeah. and stuff, but but I actually was pretty shy. And George is nine years older than me. And... And so I wasn't, a, and I was never a person that was like going up and talking to people. I mean, Margo, that was a special situation. But normally I was pretty quiet and I, a shy person. So I was an acquaintance of George because, you know, I worked at, at, for Rennie Ader, I glassed for him. I, I did piecework for all the guys in Santa Barbara uh, Wilderness, John Bradbury, Al Merrick. You know, I sanded, glassed, whatever they needed on the side to support my own shop. Yeah. And so I was glassing at Yater's, and Rennie is a good friend of George's, and George was in all the time. So I, I knew him, and I got to know him, but only as an acquaintance. Got it. And it wasn't until 19, uh, 2016 that we became, have developed a really close friendship. Oh, okay. Of all things. Imagine, for me...
0: How did that happen?
1: Well... It happened because I, I have been working on writing a book about surfboards and surf culture. I've been working on it for about eight years. And, I, and it all started because people asked me all the time about boards, what makes them work. And I thought, you know, I'm just going to do some writing about it. And that's what prompted me to do it. So I wrote these articles about hydrodynamics and all the different bottom shapes and I sent it to all my friends at Surfer Magazine and Surfer's Journal and all that and I they all told me the same thing. Uh yeah, I know yeah, nobody wants to read this stuff, put it on your website. And so I was all I was all dejected. And and uh and then somebody said It needs to be more personal, make a you know, ad Your dad's stories your stories and you know make it personal
0: yeah which I I agree with that's a good insight
1: and that was good advice so I started doing that and I've been working on it for years well the story has really evolved into the gift of Hawaiian surfing boards and culture how it's a gift to the rest of the world and and I've traced the direct lineage of all the ancient Hawaiian boards to today's modern boards and I've penned it through my personal experience of having worked on boards, so it's all my. It's not anything about reading; it's about doing it because mm. I've recreated them all and worked with all the greatest board builders over my career. And so, just from my point of view, I can write about what I've seen. Right. So I did all that, and of course, George Greeno is a central theme in my view of surfing and approach right. to surfing and type of surfboards and all that. So. I decided that I should call him and tell him I'd written this book and I wanted I w- want him to see it and make sure he approves of it. That's how it started. So in January, I call him up cuz my friends Kim Robinson and Kirk Putnam they're close friends with George. Got it you know so I he can get George's number I'll just call him he'll love talking to you right so I'm all nervous you know I'm probably out breaking into a cold sweat and I call leave a voicemail he calls me the next day and and that has led to a journey that uh, has taken me where he's brought me in and shared all of his personal templates with me and his design of the edge board which is, came after his round bottom spoon and um i ended up going to byron bay and i spent two and a half weeks with them here in june and it's probably one of the great greatest trips of my life was it you know and you know i can honestly say that we're friends now yeah and we talk on the phone every 10 days he calls me Mm -hmm. if i don't call him we talk for a couple hours every at least every couple weeks
0: i mean you guys have so much in common i I mean aside from board building you have history in common as well you know
1: you know what's funny is that i don't think i have anything in common with except him except that i'm a follower you know you guys
0: have surfing (laughs) as a lifestyle in common it's a big thing
1: he's just such an awesome guy just love him to death so have you awesome
0: have you experimented with building some of those yes absolutely
1: as a matter of fact um I've done a whole series of them to learn how to adapt them for stand-up boards. And he has encouraged me to do it because he is a knee And you have to... He's always been very generous with his knowledge. And he will help anybody who's interested. But you have to do all the fine-tuning yourself because only you can adapt the type of board that you're riding to your style of surfing and waves. He can't do that for you, yeah. but he can give you all the, the background of what you ought to consider trying. Sure. So he's given me all of his templates. He's been building a series of edge boards for people to stand up on, and a number of really high-level, high big-name surfers have been riding them, and I've you know met them and communicated with them. And I've taken all of his templates and information and shared it with a group of my friends in California and got them going on it. Yeah. Because it's really just, as George says, to put some sand in the transmission and make people stop and think.
0: Definitely. And it, but it also is such a long learning curve with things like that that it's actually beneficial to give that information to a lot of other people... Yes. Let them get feedback from a lot of their writers, Correct. and everybody kind of learn at the same time.
1: I agree with you, and yeah. it, it's helped me. I'm sharing what I learn right. with the other shapers. I'm just one guy; can make six, I make five or six boards a week. Yeah, you know, I, it'll die if I'm the only one doing it. Yeah. So I want young people to grasp this and carry it forward. That's really the point of my book: is you're changing. Generations and you're passing knowledge just like the Hawaiians have passed to us, and we passed it along. You know, it's all about the multi-generations and uh, the community Yeah, and sh- passing the baton, sharing what we know. Totally.
0: Well, there's another surfer who I'd like to hear you talk about because uh, I know he was an influence on you, and that's uh, Phil Edwards. <laughs> you know, somebody who... It's interesting, like, my generation, I think, is the first where we don't actually have access to a lot of people that a lot of pioneers in surfing you know it's like we're just barely removed but he's somebody who I hear so much about and who I've seen footage of of course what's your experience with
1: Phil? Phil Edwards is the number one greatest surfer that ever lived and almost everybody will agree with that and He's from the finless wood board era. That's when he was a little kid learning to surf. So he comes from the plank era, and he he was the first person that really mastered a surfboard to where it was all about having just a beautiful style and having command over the board. Because prior to him, you you were just surviving. Yeah, you know, and so he really. Was the first great surfer that ever lived, but he did it so much better than anyone's ever done it, but it's in relation to the you have to consider the equipment right so in relation to the equipment, uh, he his most famous surfing would have been done on a nine ten by twenty one inch wide three and a quarter inch thick balsa with no rocker and a D fin on the tail, very, very thin, foiled out forty pounds forty four zero pounds and he weighs 180 pounds he's about six two so he's a very powerful super uh strong man on a narrow heavy board and the the way he surfed was so it was a thing of beauty yeah and and he was a a, a dignified human being you know he had class uh, he, he's not like anyone else. He stands apart from everybody else, and uh, everybody that measured success in, by contrasting whatever you were doing to Phil Edwards.
0: Did you get to know him personally?
1: I got to meet Phil Edwards when I was forty years old. Okay. And my and this is why I love this story. I mean, he's been my he was my idol. Yeah. Growing up, you know, I mean, it, it, him and Greenough. Reno became the guy, you know, in the shortboard era. But, I mean, we all idolize Phil. So here I am, 40. I just love Phil Edwards. I want to meet him. And I think, oh, I no better way to meet him than to have him shape me a board. Perfect. So I, I find out where he is. Hey, can I bring a blank down? Will you shape it? Sure, come on down. So I bring this three-stringer blank. I can have him shape me a Phil Edwards model. Well, we get to talking... And he doesn't know me from Adam. But I know that he knows Rennie Yater. So I mentioned, yeah, I'm, you know, well, I'm a close friend of Rennie's. And I, I mean, we've worked together, we surfed together since I was 20 years old, you know. He says, Rennie Yater. he says, Phil Edwards tells me Rennie Yater is my idol. Rennie Yader's older than Phil. And Rennie Yader is one of the greatest human beings that ever lived in the surf world and it was so cool. Wow. Well, he kept me with him all day, took me to his house, showed me his collection. Wow. We went out to lunch. I mean, uh, so I got to spend the day with Phil. So, I don't know him at all except that I got to spend that day with him.
0: How'd that board it's turn pretty out? pretty cool. Huss.
1: <laughs> you know, as Phil told me, uh, you know, he spends hours shaping him and all... Uh, the guys at the Hobie factory would tease him. I think Stuart was still working there at the time. But they would tease him. Hey, Phil, you can only shape two boards a day. And, he's, and he would tell them, you know, tongue-in-cheek, he'd say, well, that's because I shape both sides of my boards. <laughs> <laughs> that's funny. The modern boards are flat on the bottom. All they yeah. do is drop the rails, you yeah, know. Yeah, that's I thought i loved love that.
0: Um. So, in my notes, you said that you were kind of uh, up and running in business when you were 19 years old. I read somewhere that you actually bought Spindrift Surfboards in 1971 (laughs) for $125 with all of their equipment. Is that true? (laughs) That's so true. The numbers are unfathomable. Your $30 car and your $125 business. Is that as amazing of a deal as it sounds like today?
1: Well, it... You know, it was a lot of money at the time, Okay. but nobody ever went to a, a bank. You know, we financed everything we ever did just by working and out of cash. Sure. So, you know, it is. it sounds crazy, but that 125 bucks. Bob Hawkinson was one of the owners of Spindrift, okay. him and Richard Reed, and they'd moved to Hawaii and left behind a, a guy managing the Spindrift shop, and they hired me to shape there. And uh, and then fairly quickly, they said, oh, well, this is, you know, we're just going to close the doors because the guys that own it are in Hawaii now. So I bought them out, which really was, I bought all their racks and lights and, tool you know, tools. I don't think, I hadn't even owned a planer yet until then, until I was 20. Every board I made was by hand with hand tools. Amazing. So, I mean, I'm talking about, I sure made form. the fin. Well, just imagine laying up a fin, with it, one at a time, shaping it with a rasp when it was still green before the resin got too hard, glassing with a piece of cardboard for a squeegee, I shaped the blanks with a sure form. I used a garden hose and laid it out to get my template curves. oh my gosh, I shaped them by hand and then I sanded them with a piece of wood and a, with sandpaper wrapped around it, and they were good enough I was getting order an order yeah. every week,
0: yeah. I mean, we talk about a lot handmade of work. boards versus machine boards. That was That's handmade. Handmade. <laughs> Seriously handmade. That was handmade. It's a lot of work.
1: Oh, I, I love having power tools, though.
0: <laughs> yeah, it makes it a little easier.
1: When you look at my vintage photos when I was a teenager, you'll see, recognize the tools in my racks. I still use them. Do you really? Yeah. Amazing. i got to get my money's worth.
0: <laughs> You're $125. Exactly.
1: Bucks.
0: <laughs> um, so, did you follow Hawkinson to Hawaii then? Because you no, lived no. in Hawaii a bit too, didn't the Hawk,
1: you? The Hawk was already in Hawaii. I moved to Hawaii in 73 with Bill Barnfield and I were best friends. He had.
0: I think he was back from Hawaii, by came,
1: then. He'd been in Hawaii, moved to Oregon, came to Santa Barbara. I was glassing for Al Merrick on the side then, and I just happened to be there the day Billy shows up, and Billy shows up asking for work, and he had this board that he'd built from scratch because we all built them from scratch in those days. Even Al Merrick built every board from start to finish by himself in that era because Al and I started about the same. Al was 69, I was 70, starting my board business there in Santa Barbara. So Al and I are out in front, and Billy shows up, and uh, he had this newspaper article telling how he was the dean of Oregon Seaside Surfers. That was like his resume. He made the front page of the newspaper. We just love this character. So Billy was there and became the sander and I took over the glassing. I think I was sanding. That's right. I sanded. Billy showed up. Then I took over the glassing. And Billy sanded. And then Billy and I moved to the North Shore together about a year, I think about a year later. So I stopped glassing for Almeric. Bob Hawkinson moved back from the North Shore the year that I moved to Hawaii and took over and has glassed for him ever since until last year. If you can imagine that. We traded jobs and never even realized that until last year when we were talking about it. Wow. Did you realize that, you know, he didn't know I was the glasser before he came back? Yeah. And so It's pretty funny. I mean, we glassed hundreds of those things. Sure. You know, that's when Al was getting dealers back east. This is we're talking early sef- 1972 and three. Mm-hmm. This is way before fame. Yeah. This is just back in the prehistoric days. But so no, I, I didn't know Bob until after I moved back to Santa Barbara from the North Shore in seventy five.
0: So you were in the on the North Shore for Just a year. Two years? Oh one year. Yeah, okay. I was
1: only there a year. I injured my back surfing sunset. Oh no. And uh, I, it took a year to recover from that whiplash on the inside reef. That's one of the heaviest breaking waves in the world. Anyone will tell you that that's lived there. Yeah. The pipeline might kill you, but sunset, will, it'll either drown you or just pull all your joints apart. Mm. <laughs> it's really nasty.
0: Yeah. I mean, I, I've never surfed it when it's big, but it looks, obviously, it's a lot less predictable. You know? It's a lot more chaos. Yes. Um, Were you building boards while you were out there? Oh, gosh, yeah. We went there to
1: be students of big wave surfing, Billy and I. So we built our own hot dog boards, but he was a student of Jerry Lopez and went on to become a lightning bolt, one of the dozen guys that built them. Yep. And I went to Barry Kanayapuni and had him shape me a gun. Okay. And uh, because, you know, I don't know how to make a gun for Hawaiian North Shore surf, being from Santa Barbara, where yeah. a giant day is five feet, you know. So we went there to learn, and uh, so we were building. I was glassing all of the bings that Mike Eaton was shaping for all the top guys there. I glassed for him, and Billy okay. was glassing for a couple different guys, and so we're making board. We're doing board building for a living. Cool. Always. Very cool. You know. Yeah. It seems
0: like everybody I know, especially from that era, did a stint in Hawaii. It's like in the 70s, that's what you did. You know, it seemed maybe it's a little bit more cost prohibitive now, I'm afraid. Um,
1: it, it was Mecca. You, yeah. You, if you were, because we consider that in, before professional surfing, very few people made a living from surfing. We were, the tiny percentage, Not it you know, couldn't have been a half a percent of us, we were board builders. That was the profession. And anybody who's a, a, career surfer, you have to go to the North Shore, and either die, or survive, or become something. Mm-hmm. You know. Well, I almost died. You know, and went back to small waves in Santa Barbara, where I belong. You know. But it's a real education being there, and that's what helped me understand the whole range of design so I totally understand what high performance surfing and flat bottom boards and pintails are all about what they're made for that's what I rode and that's what I built in the 70's you know for most of my customers I mean I always rode round bottom displacement hulls personally but in those years no one else did I yeah. just made them for myself Yeah. I do that now because there's an acceptance and an interest in them but you know that was a really great education. Yeah. Living there.
0: Well, I'm curious. When you got to California, why did you move from Santa Barbara to, up to uh, Half Moon Bay?
1: What, well, the what simple answer me? is is that my father, my grandfather, started an insurance brokerage business in 1951, and. Um, my brother and I thought that it would be good for us to help with the family business. Now, I was nearing 30 years old and had already had the ultimate career in surfboards. Everything that you could do, I'd done. You know, in being on the North Shore, building boards with all the greatest surfers, surfing with all those guys. And and we didn't know that there was a, a future for old people in surfing. And and, and professionalism was on the increase through the late 70s I was not for any of it you know exploiting surfing it's a lifestyle it's not a sport a professional sport it just doesn't go together that's just my opinion and it wasn't for me I wanted nothing to do with it I'm a board builder I'm not going to sell clothes and brand my name and do all that stuff it just wasn't did seem ethical to me so I thought it was time to be a part of the family business so i moved back to san mateo i was born there only lived there for five years yeah but i moved back to be a part of the business and i basically just stopped making boards for a living
0: okay but still making boards just well not i'm always long.
1: making 20 a year for myself right sure. but you know what happened the same damn thing happened all over again so i in those years, you only made boards in your community. So I was relatively unknown in Northern California. But it didn't take too many years before guys were seeing my boards and they liked them. And they kept ordering boards. So, okay, I'm making one for myself. I'll make one for you. And by by, after about 10 years, I was starting to get pretty damn busy again. Hmm. And I just loved doing it. I never would... Get tired of making boards. Right. And so it just, the business built back up to, I'm probably about, I'm not back where I was in the 70s, because, you know, we had a big factory. We were making a lot of boards in those days. But I'm close to back to being that busy. But I don't have a glass shop anymore. I just shape them. Okay. But in those days, I had a factory and, you know, we we're making the whole board. I just shape them now.
0: So. Uh, What were your production numbers like in the 70s versus now?
1: Well, I made probably 350 boards a year in the 70s, which was a a lot for a local board builder. Yeah. And I make 250 now.
0: Okay. Yeah. Without the glassing.
1: Without glassing them. Yeah, because I still have my other job at the family business.
0: Yeah, I was going to ask. So you've never, you've stuck with that the entire time. Oh, yeah,
1: yeah. I have only two jobs in my life, and I still have them both, <laughs> and they're both full time. Amazing,
0: you know. I mean, to be honest, the most—I don't know—I don't want to say the most successful or even the most interesting, but it seems to be the most, maybe the most content and satisfied people that I've interacted with. Building boards have a day job because interesting. then, because then there's no pressure on. Paying the mortgage, feeding the family, all yeah. that sort of thing, and you and there's also no pressure on producing the type of boards that people want. You can kind of explore what your interests are, yeah. invest some money, time, and time and resource in exploring the edge design, right, or whatever, without worrying about who's going to buy that and developing a market for it.
1: You know, you know, it's interesting you say that because I would agree with you that. I, I, I love it so much that I don't love it any more or less now than I did before. I just love doing it. But I just think of it as just pure joy. I mean, there's a lot of sweat. You do a lot of perspiring. You know, anybody that would ever go into a shaping room and see what it's really like, would that's why no one will do it because yeah. it's really physically tire tiresome. And uh, un- it's really unpleasant, but I just love creating stuff. But, you know, I, I think I prefer not having to do it for a living, although, you know, I depend on it. I mean, to me, it's just as important. You have to be 100% responsible. You have to take care of your customers. You can't be a flake. You have to commit to making the boards if you're going to take the order. Yeah. So it, it isn't really any less responsibility so I don't know I just ended up with two jobs (laughs) but for me I did it the other way you know I did it for a living for 10 years and uh, and I never but see I never planned to be a surfboard builder it was never a plan I wanted to be a school teacher I never in a million years I never even thought of doing it for a living I just ended up doing it for a living because I was I just always had so much work from people asking me to do it I never said no yeah. So I just ended up working six days a week making boards. And so at one point, I realized, oh, I guess I already have a job. Yeah. <laughs> Seriously. Sure. I hear you. It wasn't a plan.
0: Yeah. I'm curious, you mentioned a couple of times writing, certainly the Phil Edwards board, um, the board in Hawaii. How often do you currently order boards from other people, and how instrumental has that been in your surfing evolution and your shaping evolution?
1: That's a great question. Thanks. You know, the (laughs) the most recent board that I ordered from another shaper was a long board from Okay. three months ago. Okay. To give you some perspective. And I love that board. And I, I usually... It, at this age, I don't learn too much from other people's boards because I know what every, almost everything does from look by looking at it. Sure. But other people make things that I'm not willing to make or try and figure out how to make. I'll know I'll never do it, but I know that what they're doing is really great, and I want to experience it. And it's I just have them do it, and it doesn't necessarily influence me, but. Cool. I love my Yater. He made me a round pen. It's it's uh, off the Apocalypse Now model that he made a collector series of. Thomas Campbell's the one that that had him make one for him, and it was so beautiful that me and a bunch of other guys all ordered them.
0: Oh wow! So and, how is you were talking about? He'll explore or other shapers will explore things that you're not exploring. How is that board different than what you would make for yourself? Well,
1: it has a flat bottom. Okay. And I don't make anything with a flat bottom. But he, Rennie has his own approach to making things work. And it's totally different than me. And it's just so efficient, you know. I'm just not capable of doing it. You know, my mind, I just want to bend everything. Hmm. And he has a different approach. But the board is, has a simple beauty to it, and it serves beautifully. And I, I really enjoy that. I've had Nick Palindrani shape me a board uh, he's a really gifted young shaper. He's in the shape-off this yeah. weekend.
0: Source surfboards, Source surfboards is his label? Yes.
1: And he just has an artistic, beautiful approach to boards and a fresh, open mind that you don't see very often. So I've had him shape me a board. I had Mike Eaton shape me a bonzer when I was in Hawaii, in the North Shore,
0: because
1: hmm. uh, they had the license to make the bonzers. Bing did at the time. And that was an incredible surfboard. Uh, I have had I had Rennie shape me a board in the 80s, uh, uh, like an 8-foot baby spoon. And that was a, a memorable board. It was a really good one. Do you still have all these boards? No. I don't really collect them. I have some. I have my 8 Yeah. I'm still riding it. Yeah. Um, and I ride my own long boards, but I ride his in between. Sure. But I just... uh, So, yes, I do have other people shape me boards.
0: Who would you love to get a board from that you haven't?
1: That's a really good question. And, you know... Probably George Greeno.
0: I think you can make that happen. How could you not get a... Well, let
1: let, let me say this. He, He... I rode the boards that George built when I was in Australia. And to me, that was the most epic thing in the world. I mean, how could you not want to ride it? It was an incredible experience. And for me, I, I learned a, a ton from riding that board. I rode the 8-8 that he made. And it was an education that I—it's indescribable, what mm-hmm. I learned from riding that board. But he doesn't make them for people. He makes them... He's doing a project. He sells them and donates all the money, 100% of it, to his charity, which is the Westpac. It's a helicopter air rescue for uh, victims of of shark attacks and, you know, fishing boat accidents. Wow. You know, he supports them.
0: So how does he earn a living, then?
1: Well, George is a blessed person. He never has had to work.
0: Oh, I didn't know that. The family
1: has a, a trust. And you would never know that because he is a very resourceful, frugal person. And he's devoted his life to designing boards and, uh, you know, inventing things. And he's actually worked. He's never had to. Right. But he's worked in film projects and worked for Hollywood film crews and done a lot Mm -hmm. of things. He's an inventor, basically. Yeah. yeah, And he's a very hard-working, regular guy.
0: Yeah. Interesting. Yeah, yeah. I always wanted to get a skip fry you know and i feel like i've got to pull the trigger but like i the wait list is so long and can't get him to answer the phone and stuff like I that know, I know, so it's kind of like it's a hassle you know but I, that's yeah. a board that i've heard nothing but beautiful things about yeah. and like um people speak about it like poetry almost right you
1: know? so well for me you know yader that's why i got one i mean if you think about it that's somebody that i want a surfboard from
0: yeah totally.
1: and and i did yeah. i went and got one
0: now's the time too these you know? people are still accessible
1: yes you know? it's yes. crazy to think about uh, still working it is amazing well and that's our you know those are the people that we've looked up to
0: right what so back to half moon bay i think most people can only really only associate it with mavericks <laughs> what are the waves like in the area Give me paint the picture for me.
1: Okay. I love two foot waves, and I live across the street from Mavericks. Okay. <laughs> Everybody asked me, "Oh, have you surfed the Maverick?" And of course, that's my joke with my brother. We always joke about it, and uh, it's it's the most grotesque wave. It does. It's not even a surf spot by our standards, right. <laughs> but. And Jeff Clark is a is a good personal friend of mine. We've been friends for years. I used to make him boards when he was a little kid. And, um, you know, so I know all about Mavericks, and I have lots of friends who surf it. But, of course, I'm not interested in surfing Mavericks. I already did my time on the North Shore. Yeah. And thank God Mavericks hadn't been discovered then, because I probably would have ridden it. And I'm glad I didn't ever do it. But... Half Moon Bay is just all beach breaks that get occasionally good, but mainly we have the San Francisco is really our best surf. Oh, okay. And, and that's where we go in the fall when it's really good. Okay. But the rest of the time, we're just surfing beach break.
0: How far are you from San Francisco?
1: It's 20 miles. Okay. It's a 25-minute drive. Got it.
0: Okay. Yeah, uh, it's a beautiful, I mean, obviously, it's a beautiful region, and part of the state, um, but I've never, I've not much surfed around there, you know?
1: Yeah. So. um, There aren't enough rideable waves. We have Pacifica and Ocean Beach, and the rest of the beach breaks are only two months out of the year, and so then you're stuck in Santa Cruz, and everybody surfs there. Yeah. You know? Yeah, yeah. And so I wish we had more. We have the most beautiful beaches in the state. Sure. But Southern California, almost all of them are rideable. Exactly. You yeah. know, and that's what I love about going down south. Yeah. I mean, you don't get a lot of size, but up here, we get lots of big surf and it's rideable. Mm-hmm. You know, we worry about it being too big. Mm-hmm. That's the big problem up here. It's never a question of, is there surf? It's, oh, shit. You know, it's a little bigger than I than I thought it was. That's the usual complaint.
0: There's so many contours in the coast, though, and nooks and crannies that I would think you'd be able to find small nope. spots. You Can't.
1: It's the shits. Really? Yeah, believe me, it's really crappy. Huh? There, there's just so many corners that are just a disaster. Yeah. And we all get lured out there. Because it's you like, think oh you see shit! Something? Oh my god! You know, it just yeah. get your ass kicked. Yeah.
0: <laughs> Funny. Um, I'm curious about what your opinion is or do you follow the current professional surfing at all? You I do, the mildly. Contest?
1: And you know, it's funny. I just like to know what's going on. And I actually subscribe to Surfing Magazine, which caters to the pro surfing movement. Yeah. And so I, I do follow it, just but, but really as a, as a minor interest. Yeah. But you just like to know what's going on. I mean, uh, like Joel Parkinson... Is, you know, in the top two or three guys, but that guy has such a beautiful style. See, I'm really into style. Oh, yeah. But here's a guy riding a modern board that just has this beautiful style. Yeah. You know, like Tommy Curran. Yeah. Was just a style master. And Acalupo, you know, I love those two. They're two pro surfers that I just love the way they surf. You know, Curran and Acalupo yeah. and Joel Parkinson.
0: Yeah, Parko just made the final at Lowers too, so I love He's that. still on top, yeah.
1: Yeah, so you know, yeah, so I follow it to the point that there's guys that they're doing the stuff that I like to see.
0: You're not staying up till midnight tonight to watch the France contest? No, <laughs> yeah. I
1: don't actually follow it in detail, just <laughs> yeah, from, yeah. from a distance. Sure. But
0: you're you still know? reading the magazines, which to be honest, I'm not. I'm not even subscribing to the magazines anymore, you know. Do you
1: go online? Is yeah. there online information?
0: I, I follow everything uh, like in a very detailed way. Like I could tell you what the rankings are right now and who's right. sponsored by who. But um, but the magazines, for some reason, it just, I don't know, uh, you know, the information's outdated oftentimes and the, um, I don't know. I just, I've gotten off of it. I'm not sure why. Because I do enjoy them, you know, when I pick them up. I think maybe they're accessible at work. I pick don't them up the magazines
1: have an online version? They do, yeah. With, a, you know, instant streaming of whatever special events there are?
0: They do. It's not its not like a click. You can't like read the articles necessarily that are in the right. magazine. So if you want the long-form article, I think that would be the biggest incentive to buying the magazine. Right, right. Um, which is a huge incentive for... Like Surfer's Journal does a fantastic job right. telling story, you know, and so there's value there. But um, do you manage or do you have any team writers ever? Or do you get... Fee- how do you...
1: I I do have a team. You do? Oh, I yeah. I didn't think you did. Yeah. Yeah, I actually always did, even in the 70s. Really? I have a group of guys. Okay. Um, the Sam and Matt George were on my team in the 70s. Oh,
0: really? <laughs> yeah. Little known fact.
1: Little known fact. But I've always had a group of young guys that are really good surfers, and it's no okay. different up here. I have a group of... They're really... I'd consider them just personal friends who are really great people and good surfers and it we we have it it's an informal team. Okay. But I get a lot of feedback from those guys. I'm no longer from all my surfing injuries I'm no longer able to test all my own equipment. Got it. So I certainly can't ride giant wave boards and I can't ride boards under eight feet. Okay. And But I have other people that take care of those extremes.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And, I mean, it seems like you're... I mean, there's two reasons to have a team. One would be to get feedback from yes. surfers. The other yes. would be to get promotion from those surfers to sell more boards. Seems yeah. like you're only
1: utilizing one of those. It's only the one. It's okay. just it's just feedback. And it's really just because I love those guys. They're just... They help me yeah. understand if I'm on the right track or not. Yeah. And that's really important to me because I don't want to make a board for somebody... I only make boards for you after I know what it does. I don't ever want to experiment with a customer. Yeah. Because I have a guarantee replacement. If it doesn't work for you or if there's anything you don't like, just give it back and I'll replace it. Cool. Very cool. Yeah. Yeah.
0: The final question um, I have for everybody interviewed is just what was the last surfboard that you rode?
1: Well, that would have been like today at 11 o'clock when I rode my 9.6 edge board. At Pacifica, and it was about chest high offshore wind, beautiful waves today. Really, just beautiful. And my edge board is made for bigger waves. You know, it's nine six. It's a bit long, but that design it just it just glides across the water effortlessly. You so, don't even have to do anything to make it go. It's a single fan, and it just goes by itself. Hmm. And I I love that board.
0: Do you want to? Um, describe that design a little bit? I don't think we touched on it earlier.
1: Let me see. I think I can give you the simplest explanation of an edge board. It's a board that's made for less than perfect conditions. The The center is concave and there's a hard edge that follows the center of the board. So let's say you have a board that's 22 inches wide and The concave is 18 inches wide, and there's edges on the concave. And then the outside of the board, which is where your rails are, are round and lifted all the way to the deck. So it's like a boat. It's not like a surfboard. It's like a boat. So you have a hydroplane in the center of your surfboard, and the outside edges of the board are lifted up to get out of the way. So no matter what kind of chop or bump you're riding through, you have a center high speed tow board that just flies through it across the top of it but when you go to turn the board the rails are so soft and raised up to the deck that it'll just roll right over onto the rail Mm. and it takes all the bounce and the bump out of the surf so they're very smooth and easy to turn and they'll just trim over all the dead spots right that's basically what the the design is about got it and that's what greeno intended them for for less than perfect surf. Yeah. And if you want to test them in ideal conditions, come to Northern California, because that's what we specialize in.
0: Sounds like you did today, actually. <laughs> today yeah, is almost right, too good for it. We can see one right there, right? That's uh, right. Two-colored, multi-colored Yes, that's one, one right there. Um, yeah, I mean, I understood. I mean, I've seen the design, obviously. I never understood that it was specifically designed for... Less than ideal.
1: Mediocre surf.
0: Yeah. Okay. That makes a lot of sense. And
1: flat spots. That's what it's actually designed for. Okay. You take a wave with bottom tension. Yeah. Like Rincon in the Cove, one of the greatest waves in the world, and everything will work there. Everything works there. Sure. Because you have, it's like a slingshot, like a taut, fresh rubber band. It launches you out of every turn. Right. Because of the tension at the bottom of the wave, that's what makes real, true surfing is in that kind of a wave. Most of us don't ever get to ride those waves because of crowds. But once you're displaced from those lineups, like us older people, and greeno on his mat, you know, then you want boards that'll give you a wonderful experience in be surf. Right. You know. So that's really what's behind it.
0: Um, what's the best way for listeners to get a hold of you?
1: Uh, my email, just uh, uh, info at com. Cool.
0: Andrinisurfboards.com is the website.
1: Yes. Direct them all there. Yes.
0: Awesome. Is there anything else that you want to talk about or anything that I identifies? You out?
1: guys are the future. And I so appreciate that you're interested in wanting to know what we learned. And we were just kids and we got to learn from the guys that had invented stuff before us and. We just want to pass it on and where I'm really thankful that that anybody is interested in wanting to know. Yeah. You know.
0: I'm curious to see what comes of that book project.
1: That'll be in the spring hopefully and I hope everybody enjoys it.
0: So it actually has a deadline on it?
1: Oh yeah. Yeah, it's wow. basically done. We're just refining and getting all the final proofreading done.
0: So does it have a publisher attached to it and distribution? It'll uh, be
1: self-published. That? Okay. And uh, we'll figure out all the distribution through the website. Yeah. It, it'll all happen. We'll do the book signings and all that next year. Okay. Exciting. Very cool. Well, thank you. Thank you, David. Yeah. A pleasure.
0: Doesn't get you psyched to ride some alternative equipment compared to what you're currently riding, then I don't know what would. Mark's making some incredible boards, and if you are at all in a position, contact him and uh, reach out and have him custom make you a board. You will not be disappointed. I don't own one, but I plan to, and everybody I know who does have an Andrini raves about it. So really, really amazing stuff. Thank you for that, Mark. Appreciate the time. And listeners, if you want to help support this show, share it with friends and or make a donation. We have a donation platform on SurfSplendorPodcast.com. You can contribute there and we'll also post a link to Andrini's website and all the things that we discussed in this episode. You can also leave a comment about today's show or any of the past shows because they're all archived for free, as is every music track for every episode of surf splendor including this one by bibio so check that out if you've ever been curious about the music that's all i have for today this is david scales signing off until next week and reminding you to shred them